Last week, I challenged uh, you all in the message to consider whether or not you felt you could um, share Jesus from Scripture. And uh, it just so happens that this week in the, the Gospel Coalition website, there was an article titled, How to Share the Gospel. So just so happens that we were able to print off several copies, uh, laid them down there for you uh, after the service if you are so inclined. If you wonder whether you can share Christ from the scripture, if you want to work on your ability to present the gospel, then we want to put that very practical resource in your hands, please. Take some time at the conclusion of the service, stop by and pick one up and then pray that the Lord will give you opportunity to use what you're learning so that you can share the good news of Jesus. To convert, a verb, cause to change in form, character, or function. Convert, a noun, a person who has been persuaded to change his or her religious or other beliefs. The heading in your Bible uh, over today's passage of scripture, if you happen to have a Bible with headings, might say something like the title of this message, The Conversion of Saul. To convert is to change from one thing to another. Christian conversion involves change. And the Bible has a lot of ways of describing this change. To be born again, to become a new creation, to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, to put off the old and put on the new, to be saved. All these phrases and many others like them speak to what we call conversion. Everyone who is a Christian has been converted, has been changed. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher and revivalist, wrote in his personal narrative, about his conversion. You see, he grew up in a pastor's home, but he objected to the notion of God's sovereignty until the Lord captured his heart. After which he said, the appearance of everything was altered. There seemed to be, as it were, a calm, sweet cast or appearance of divine glory in almost everything. God's excellency, his wisdom, his purity and love seemed to appear in everything. In the sun, in the moon, in the stars, in the clouds, in the blue sky, in the grass, the flowers, trees, in the water, and all of nature. Edwards has a similar story to that of many others. We think of the father of Methodism, John Wesley, how at Aldersgate in London, the doubting preacher felt his heart, he described it this way, strangely warmed as he received assurance from God of his new birth in Christ. And of course, there's John Newton, right? The wretched slave ship captain who God redeemed with his amazing grace and called into a life of Christian ministry. And then, of course, there's Augustine, the great church father, who was praying to God in anguish, in part over conviction for his own immorality, his own hedonistic ways, in what he termed of the bitter contrition of his heart when he heard the voice of a child singing a song pick it up and read it 
pick it up and read it. And he first thought that song must be part of a children's game. And then he believed maybe God was trying to speak to him. And that thing which he ought to pick up and read, he thought, might be the scriptures. So he found a Bible. He picked it up and he read it. And the first passage he came to was Romans 13, verses 13 and 14, which say, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And so he testified after that, I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to. For instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty, and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. Augustine was saved, he was baptized, and from there he went on to apply his gifts of teaching and writing to the advancement of God's kingdom. To be converted is to be changed. And in our passage this morning from Acts 9, we have the story of an astonishing, wonderful conversion. Our Father and our God, as we come now to sit beneath your word, we ask you to enlighten our hearts and minds. Help us to hear what you have to say to us. Make us open and receptive to the work of your spirit in our lives. For our good we know. For your glory is what matters. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in our journey through the New Testament book of Acts, we first came across this man named Saul at the stoning of Stephen in chapter 7. He was present at, and Acts 8.1 adds, approved of Stephen's execution. By Acts 8.3, Saul had begun ravaging the church. And the word we translate there, ravaging, comes from a root word which means to soil, to defile, to mistreat, to dishonor, to devastate. Saul would enter house after house, Luke tells us, and drag off men and women to prison because of their profession of faith in Jesus. And as we pick up the text now in chapter 9, open your Bibles there if you want to as you follow along we see that Saul's treachery has not eased up a bit. In fact, it's gaining momentum. Philip has been transported to Azotus, where he will preach up to Caesarea, while Saul goes on a different, in a different direction on a completely contrary mission. Chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul is bent on rooting out and stifling the growing movement of Christianity. He's not satisfied confining his efforts to Jerusalem. He's willing and wanting to travel 135 miles north to Damascus, he sets out for the synagogues there in his quest to preserve Jewish orthodoxy by eradicating Christians. He's going after the people of the way. He's on the offense. He is an unabashed, unashamed, and unprecedented, 
unprecedented enemy of the Christian church. He would wipe it out if he could, and he's trying to. And as he draws near to his destination, a light from heaven shines around him. It's in the middle of the day. We'll note that from other uh, allusions to this story as well. So it's not the sun. It's something brighter than the sun that shines around him. And he unexpectedly finds himself in those moments in God's spotlight. And apparently it is a bright light. It is a blinding light as it causes him to fall to the ground. Now, let me just interject something here, maybe clear up a misconception. How many of you, in being taught this story, or in the way that you envision it, believe Saul falls off a horse? <laughs> I'll stop it now. One, two, three, the rest, come on, four, no. No other take, yeah, four, okay. Five, yeah, I'm looking up now. Okay, thank you for being honest. Thank you for being honest. Saul does not fall off a horse. At least, according to this narrative, he doesn't. In fact, there is no evidence in the Bible at all that he was riding on a horse. Right? And yet, this really is part of the story that we... Sometimes it's part of the story that we tell. It's part of the story that we have in our minds. When Saul's conversion is spoken about, we get the idea that the bright light comes and knocks him off his horse. Why on earth would anybody think that? Well, I want to show you. This is not a major point. It just interests me. <laughs> Sh throw that up there, Ben, if you can. Okay, does it, does it show up? You can at least see the horse, right? Okay, so this is, an, this is a long, I, I'm not even going to try to, with these names, I'm not going to try to say who the artist is or when it was, but this is an ancient rendering of Saul's conversion. That's one. How many do we have, Ben? That's Michelangelo's. That one's even harder to see, right? Did you see the horse? Okay, that's all that matters, right? Okay, throw up the next one if you would, Ben. That is a horse right there, okay? Listen, if you Google Saul's conversion or art regarding Saul's conversion, you're going to come up with picture after picture after picture. You can take that down now, Ben. Thank you very much. You can, of, of Saul falling off a horse, okay? So if you don't get anything else out of today, there's no horse, okay? <laughs> Lose the horse, okay? Saul is approaching Damascus. A great light shines around him, and he hears a voice, and the voice spoke directly to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Whose voice is it? Saul didn't know. We know because we read the story. But he didn't know. It is Jesus speaking. It is the risen Christ. Now, on a number of occasions so far as we've made our way through Acts, we have seen how the apostles are adamantly bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to the fact, the very fact that Jesus is alive. 
Remember Peter's earlier sermons. I'll refresh your memory at Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. On Solomon's portico, Peter again preaches the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Before the council, when Peter and John were dragged before the council, remember that, into the court for the, uh, after the healing of the lame beggar. Let it be known, again Peter, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And before the council again, when all the apostles had been arrested and then miraculously freed from prison and, uh, by God's angel and then brought back, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The resurrection of Jesus then is the linchpin of this whole thing. The resurrection is the linchpin. If Jesus isn't alive, then he didn't pay for sins. He didn't defeat death. He doesn't have the gift of eternal life to give. He takes his place among the number of good teachers that have roamed this earth who are dead and gone. But the gospel message and what makes this thing good news is that Jesus is alive. He is alive. He was killed, but he rose from the dead. The penalty of sin was absolutely satisfied in his death, and now death no longer has the final word. Death does not have the final word. So let me ask you, friend, do you have any concerns at all about death? Do you have any fears about death? Do you know what will happen to you when you die, after you die? Do you worry about dying? The writer of Hebrews likens the dread of death to slavery. Fear of death holds people captive, but it is an unnecessary fear, especially for those who trust in Jesus. He came to this world in flesh and blood, and he died, according to Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. If you don't know for sure where you are headed when your short spin through this life is over, comes to a close. If you don't know what's going to happen after that, please do not leave this place today without getting such an important matter settled. Let us help you with that. 
Jesus is alive. He conquered death, and in him you will too. The Bible in 1 Corinthians calls Jesus' resurrection the first fruits. That means the first of many to come. Jesus paved the way. Jesus blazed the trail. Many will rise. He rose from dead as the pledge, as the earnest, that if you have faith in him, you also will rise. And that is why Jesus could say with confidence, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now the Jewish religious leaders who conspired to have Jesus killed didn't want to hear any of that. Okay, They did not want to accept this fact. The lordship of Jesus was very inconvenient to what they wanted to believe and how they wanted to live. So much so that they would not tolerate the proclamation of Christ's resurrection. And Saul, we know, is all in with these guys. Saul is exactly in that camp with those men. So what does Jesus do? Because Saul doesn't want to hear it, and Saul is, is persecuting the church because of it. Jesus proves himself alive to Saul. It's none other than the risen Lord who is speaking. Saul, Saul, why? Are you persecuting me? And Saul doesn't get it. He doesn't know. So, so he, he says, who are you, Lord? And the answer, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. So Saul stood up. His, his eyes were open, but he couldn't see. He could not see. His physical blindness here is a vivid picture of his spiritual condition. He is blind to the truth. He is blind to, to God. And this intimidating man who was aggressively making his way to Damascus to wreak havoc on the Christians is now feebly led by the hand into the city. Let me ask you a friend who's in control now. For three days, Luke tells us Saul didn't eat or drink anything. And then we get to verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Okay, having read a decent amount of Acts to this point, our response to this verse should be, of course there was. <laughs> right? Because it's, it's written in such a way. Now there was, of course there was. Because over and again we have seen through this book that our great God is a scheduler of divine appointments. All right? That he sees ahead, that he goes ahead, that he prepares the way. So we don't read coincidentally here, right? In the, in the scripture. I don't even know if there's a Greek word for that. It probably is. But anyway, it's not in there. It doesn't say coincidentally or it just so happened by chance. No, these encounters prearranged by our sovereign God. By his will, there was a disciple in Damascus. There was a learner and a follower and a lover of Jesus right in that very city. His name was Ananias. And we don't know a whole lot more about him. F.B. Meyer was a British pastor. He was an author as well. He wrote about the relative anonymity of Ananias, about the ordinariness of Ananias. And he wrote, he wrote in such a way that what he says is really an exhortation to us. I'm going to read it. It's kind of older, older English. But he says, How graciously God makes use of prepared souls 
as partners in the work of salvation. It would have been easy for the risen Lord to have himself completed what he had begun. Or he might have brought a Philip or an apostle upon the scene. But instead of this, he called a comparatively obscure man who was to give Saul the help and counsel he needed. See to it that you are of such a temper that Jesus may commission you to heal the wounds with which he brings his predestined servants to the ground. Now, I know we don't talk like that, but see to it that you have such a disposition that you would be available to be the helper to the one that God brings low. Right? That is beautiful. A little taper may be used to kindle a great light. Though not a great man, Ananias was preeminently a good man. He had his strong prepossessions, but laid them aside at the bidding of Christ. We're going to see about his strong prepossessions here in, in just a second. The point is he laid them aside at the bidding of Christ. And so but Meyer goes on again to give this little nugget of wisdom. Take care not to entrench yourself too strongly in your prejudices. Be mobile to Christ's touch while you are strong against all others. Ha <laughs> That is beautiful. Be mobile. Be available. Be, be responsive to Christ's touch. Don't be so stuck in your ways. Be open to his. The Lord visited Ananias in a vision. This is so sweet. And he calls his name. And Ananias answered God's call as anyone want. By the way, anyone should. If you hear your name called by God, how are you going to answer? You're going to say, here I am. I hope you would. Here I am, Lord. And in that vision, he received some very explicit instructions. Rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Oh, we've said this before. We said that in Philip. Oh, with the instructions of the Lord were always so plain. You know, it's just, go here, find that guy, do this, this is what, well, we, we don't always get the memo, do we? We don't always get the post-it, we don't always get the clarity that we want, but praise God, Ananias gets it. God is up to something. He gives him very specific directions. Ananias has a vision where he's told to go to Saul, and Saul has a vision where he sees Ananias coming. So we got double visions going on here in Acts chapter 9. And all of this is going to happen, why? So that no one can lay it at the feet of coincidence. God is at work. God is building his church. And he's going to use some unlikely people to do it. Ananias is supposed to lay his hands on Saul so that Saul will be able to see again. I suppose a few of the Christians may have heard that Saul had been blinded. And how do you think they might have reacted? Son of a gun, isn't that awesome news? Ananias gets a message as a follower of Jesus and a divine messenger of God. He brings the power he's supposed to, the power of God to Saul, to heal him. But there's a problem, or at least there could be, in that Ananias recognizes the name of this man, this Saul. 
because he has a reputation, and not just from an isolated story. It's not like it's a one and done, but he has been persecuting many. All the way up in Damascus, Ananias has heard from many about all the harm, all the evil that Saul has viciously perpetrated on the church. And he has ravaged the church at Jerusalem. And verse 14, and here, Ananias reminds God. Did you ever find yourself in that position? And, and here, Ananias reminds God, verse 14, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. To which God replies, Oh, you're right, Ananias. I missed that. I think maybe we should do something different now. No, he does not. Ananias' objections, 100% understandable right there, right? 100% understandable because he has a very earthbound view which is the same view that we have. But our Father in heaven has the view, the perfect view, a better plan, a different plan. And he graciously shares it with Ananias. Go, for this man is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Oh, the good works of God that he has prepared prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Before we ever knew those works, before we ever knew that God, he had the good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in, that Saul should walk in. And Ananias learns of the plans that God has for Saul even before Saul does far as we can tell and with this word of God fresh in his mind he does just what he's told verse 17 laying hands on him he said brother Saul what faith it must have taken to call this violent persecutor of the church brother and yet it it, it truly reflects the reality that when one accepts Christ as savior one inherits a family Amen? This guy's going to be my brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So what's about to happen is both a physical transformation and a spiritual one. Saul's literal eyesight will be restored and his spiritual eyesight will be acquired. His temporary physical blindness forced him to recognize his spiritual blindness. He was physically blind for a few days, but he'd always been spiritually blind. Because spiritual blindness is the condition of all people apart from Jesus. People who do not have the Holy Spirit are spiritually blind. I don't say that as a criticism. I say that as a matter of fact from the word of God. This is the condition of the unsaved, of the unbeliever. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world, who is the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The devil doesn't want you to see Jesus. The devil doesn't want you to see things clearly. He's going to blind your eyes and keep that gospel out of sight. 
But in the laying on of hands, Saul will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he will be healed of his blindness. All of it. Physical, spiritual, all of it. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And so the old hymn goes, No darkness have we who in Jesus abide. The light of the world is Jesus. We walk in the light when we follow our guide. The light of the world is Jesus. Come to the light. It is shining for thee. Sweetly the light has dawned upon me. Once I was blind, but now I can see. The light of the world is Jesus. Saul can see. His eyes have been opened to the truth, to the power, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he rose and he was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. And with those words, Dr. Luke concludes what's arguably the most significant conversion story in the New Testament. A story so important that we're going to see it showing up two more times in the book, just so we don't miss it. And very soon we will see as we read on that Saul was in fact changed by God. But for now I want us to wrap it up with just two thoughts from this passage. Two which I believe are the can't miss takeaways from this story. The first is this, don't miss it. Conversion is an act of God's grace. Conversion is an act of God's grace. The old reformed mantra suits this here. It's appropriate. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay? Not only has Saul done nothing to deserve the saving grace of God, if anything, he has merited God's wrath and punishment. Would you agree with that? If anything, he should have a target on his back and God should be looking to crush him. That's how we would see it, right? He has done nothing to deserve God's favor. But you know what? Something we can all love and appreciate about Jesus is that he doesn't just crush his enemies. He converts them. He doesn't just crush his enemies. He converts them. He wins them. Amen? Saul was a violent persecutor of the church, and by Jesus' admission, a persecutor of the Lord himself. You mess with the bride, you mess with the groom. The church is the bride of Jesus. Saul had set himself up against God, and yet it is God's will to change that, to save him, and put him to work on the right side of things. How good of God to reform the hearts and the minds of his opponents to reform the hearts and the minds of his enemies. This, my friend, is the sheer grace of God to preserve and sanctify a life for his glory. And beloved, I want to say, if it can happen to Saul, it can happen to anyone. Okay? God can change anyone. The vilest offender who truly believes, we sing it, to God be the glory. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. In Isaiah 50, God asks, is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? And the answer is no. The hand of God is not shortened so that it cannot reach, it cannot redeem. And yes, he has all the power to deliver. Years ago, 
the band Audio Adrenaline, I think it was Audio Adrenaline, released a song called Leaving 99. Maybe you've heard of that. Some of the lyrics are these written from the perspective of God. You're never too far down. I promise you'll be found. I'll reach into the mud and the miry clay. Pursue you to the end like a faithful friend. Nothing in this world can keep me away. And that, that song, in part, is based on our call to worship, Psalm 40, verse 2. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, is what the King James says, out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock. Friend, the life of sin is a wallow. The life of sin is a pig pen. It's a muddy bog, and God's arm is not too short to reach in and pull you out of it, even if you think it's the best swimming hole ever. He is a saving God, even for those who don't immediately recognize their need for salvation. God's saving grace is available even for someone like Saul who's assaulting the church, the people God loves. His saving grace is available for that someone you know who has a similar disdain for Jesus, for the Bible, and for the church. His saving grace is available for whoever you happen to believe is the most lost cause in your life. And if you have not personally received it, His saving grace is available to you today. Conversion is an act of God's grace. Number two, conversion involves an encounter with Jesus that leads to a changed life. How have you changed since you made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ? The Lord works in different ways in different people. We know that. Some experiences are dramatic, uh, dramatic conversions, and some conversion experiences are much more Subtle. Some people can point to the day, the hour, the moment, the place when Jesus took hold of their lives. And other people are like, I don't know, but at some point I just realized I love the Lord and he loves me and we've been together ever since. That's just, the Lord works in different ways through different people. But the common denominator in every single conversion experience is an encounter with Jesus that leads to change. And where do we encounter Jesus you might ask. Thank you for asking. Most commonly, we encounter Jesus in the pages of Scripture that teach us who he is, why he came to this world, what he did in his death, burial, and resurrection, and what he's doing even now. We encounter Jesus in the Bible. We encounter Jesus in his church, right? In worship, as we sing, and as we pray, and as we preach, and as we come to his table, and as, as we See his followers like the Ethiopian eunuch or like Saul here enter the waters of baptism, identifying with the death and burial of Jesus, being raised to newness of life. We encounter Jesus when we pray as the publican in the temple, have mercy on me, a sinner. We encounter Jesus and his people. We find him when the faithful followers proclaim the gospel. When the, when the good news is shared, that is how people encounter Jesus. We, we encounter Jesus when people like Philip and Ananias are obedient to do just what the Spirit tells them to do. 
We encounter Jesus in a, a wide variety of ways, and yet we must say this one may encounter Jesus in a number of ways. Frankly, none of them is guaranteed to produce salvation. Many in Christ's own day, many in ours, hear the invitation of God to save their souls and reject it. But for those who will receive it, the Bible tells us, to as many as believe on him, they'll become sons and daughters of God. And the way each of us knows that we are a son or daughter of God is the change that comes after the encounter with the Lord. And by that, don't, don't get confused. I do not mean to say at all that we automatically straighten up and fly right as soon as we come to know Jesus, okay? We become a new creation, is what the scripture tells us, that positionally we are new. And then we spend the rest of our lives trying to live into what that looks like. That is the process of transformation by the Spirit. The gracious work of God that we read about in Romans 8, where he is making us, conforming us to the image of his Son. And some people change quickly. And those of you who don't are maybe jealous of those who do. Like, how do you do that? Some people change quickly. In a matter of days, Saul went from being Christianity's fiercest critic to one of its most passionate advocates, right? Some people change slowly, yet all change, whether quickly or slowly, all change over time. And that's the important part of conversion. All people who are converted change. C.H. Spurgeon wrote this, another proof of the conquest of a soul for Christ will be found in a real change of life. If the man does not live differently from what he did before, both at home and abroad, his repentance needs to be repented of and his conversion is a fiction. C.S. Lewis said something similar. If conversion makes no improvements in a man's outward actions, then I think his conversion was largely imaginary. Conversion involves an encounter with Jesus that leads to a changed life. So let me ask, I have to, has, has it for you? Has it led to a changed life for you? I pray that it has. And if not, then maybe today could be the day for you to leave that life of sin and begin the life you were made to live, which is for the Lord. For those of you here this morning who are saved, as we reflect on the conversion of Saul, and to a degree, of course, our own conversion, having been rescued by God from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his glorious light, once blind, now seeing, we draw our worship to close with a praise and with thanksgiving expressed in the lyrics of a 120-year-old hymn based on a 3,000-year-old hymn that rejoices in the power of God to save.